All right. Kids, you have a great time today in your class, and we'll have an awesome time in the Word together as well. It is uh, it's good to be with you this morning, church family. So thankful that each of you are here. So many guests. We are so thankful that you're with us this morning. Thanks for taking time to join us at, at Hope Valley Church. If you're joining us online, we also want to say welcome. We are thankful for each and every single one of you. Uh, how many of you have young kids? Young kids? It's a, not, as, not as young anymore, right? But, um, but you'll remember this. Um, so a new Harvard study has found that, uh, that children between the ages of two and five ask about 40,000 questions. Yeah? You, yeah and and if, you're, if you're in that stage right now, you're like, oh yeah, like that's it. That's only, only 40,000. Uh, but here's something interesting they found, though, is that after about age five, that number begins to just drop significantly. By the time they're about 12, it has completely plummeted to the point where they have found that most kids don't ask any more questions at all after that point. I guess you've kind of arrived, figured it all, figured it all out. Uh, but it's an interesting transition between asking all the questions to, no, I'm, I'm good. I don't, I don't need to hear anything else that anybody else has to say. I remember when I was in seminary, uh, one of my philosophy professors, first day of class, said, all right, you might have heard it said before that there's no such thing as a dumb question. And he says, that's a lie. And if you ask one, I'm going to stop the class, I'm going to tell you it's a dumb question, and then we're going to move on. I didn't ask any questions that semester. Um, I just let that, I let that one ride. When when I look into the scriptures, there are lots of different kinds of questions. There's, there's some dumb questions that oftentimes are asked by the disciples, and it's pretty funny. Uh, one of my favorites is when, uh, after the, the, the woman, Jesus meets the, woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, and the disciples come back, and, and uh, they're like coming back to bring him food, and, and then when they bring him the food, he's like, no, I don't, I don't need that. I have, I have food that you don't know about. And they're like, somebody bring him food? Where, did, where, did the, where does that come from? And Jesus is like, no, you just, no, no. I, that's, you, just don't, you just don't get it. Uh, but there's, there's dumb questions, there's silly questions, but then there's some deep, profound questions that are, that are asked in, in the Scriptures. Uh, one of them is Jesus asks his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? And they said, you know, so, some say that you're, you know, you're Elijah. Some say that you're some other great prophet. And, he, and then Jesus looks at his disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? One of the most significant questions that you and I need to answer in our life. But then there's another question, a question in our text this morning in Acts chapter 16. It's asked by an unbeliever, the Philippian jailer. And the question that he asks is this. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Probably the single most important question that we can ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So we are now in Acts, at the very end of Acts 15, going into Acts chapter 16, which is going to begin Paul's second missionary journey. So if you remember a few weeks ago, we tracked all through Paul's first missionary journey. We went place to place, uh, looking at exactly what, what he was doing there, how the Lord worked in so many different places. 
And it was incredible to see the hand of God at work through the Apostle Paul and Barnabas as they, as they worked their way through. Uh, this, the end of chapter 15, it now is going to transition into Paul's second missionary journey. And I'll show you a picture of that, uh, just a little bit of what, that, of what that looks like. Because this time, instead of going the, the route that he went before, he takes it the opposite route. So he kind of does the visits, but he does it in reverse order. And so he's going, to, uh, he's going to start in the exact same place after Jerusalem Council. They go into Antioch, and then they work their way back up to Derby and to Lystra and Iconium, and they work their way back through. But God is going to detour them a little bit. He's going to change the course of, um, of their trip uh, in some pretty incredible ways. It's always a good idea to let God drive your direction. You might have ideas and thoughts and plans of things that you would like to do, things that places that you want to, uh, things you want to accomplish, places that you want to go. But ultimately, it's in the hands of the Lord. So Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 36, the very end, this is where we get the intro. It says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. I love, I love this because it shows the pastoral heart of Paul. He had a deep desire and a deep love for the churches. In fact, we see that throughout his letters where he had a deep, deep burden and love for those that God had entrusted to him. New believers and new churches had gotten started. And so he doesn't want to leave them on their own. He, he wants to, to pursue them. He wants to check on them. That's he, he, why he writes his epistles. He writes in, in instruction and they write him and then he would respond. And so you see this really neat relationship that Paul has uh, with these new churches in these, in these cities. So he says, Let's, I want to go back and we want to see how they're doing. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Now remember, when we tracked that missionary journey, John Mark started with them. And then pretty quickly, right after they had encountered opposition in Cyprus, he bailed and he left. We don't know exactly why. We weren't exactly told other than this is, causes the conflict that we were referring to then. And so Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark. Uh, Paul thought it best not to take the one who had, been, who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had, gone with, had not gone with them to the work. And there rose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. I look at this passage and I want to say, wait, you know, last week, uh, Pastor Kevin talked about the, the, the church, the, the Jerusalem Council, although the most epic sermon title ever, um, the, the church business meeting that actually went well and accomplished something. I think it was the title of his message. Um, and uh, and it, was, it was great. But it was also a, just a really neat uh, picture of God's people coming together, talking through issues, and it actually going well. It was, it was a really great example and something for us to model. But then all of a sudden, they just leave that council, and now we've got another problem. Now we've got a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And I read this, and I want to say, Man, what, like, what's happening here? Like, what's the deal? How, how do I handle that? What do, I, what do I do with that? And then I think about it for a moment, and I say, we don't, we don't do anything with that, right? It just shows us that God uses broken people, right? If my story was told in the book of Acts, you guys would read it and you'd be like, who is this Jared guy, and why can't he get his act together, 
Like, what is, what is the deal? But that's the story of, of us, right? Who, the story of us who, who so often are, are half-hearted, who, who wander, who go away, and we see a God who relentlessly pursues his people, and we see a God who uses broken people. And so we can actually look at this and say, well, what do I need to do with that? We can look at that and say, hey, I'm so thankful that stories like that are there. I'm so thankful that God doesn't give up on us when he has every right to just say, no, nah, no, we're, we're done with, with you. But he, he doesn't stop. And he is not done with either of these guys. He's not done writing their story. And so it says that um, there's this sharp disagreement. And so Paul chooses uh, uh, this man named Silas, who was a leader in the Jerusalem church. We heard about him in chapter 15. And they go on their ministry. And then Barnabas chooses John Mark, which is his cousin. And they go on and they do their ministry as well. And the gospel continues to spread. Now, here's what we're going to do. We have a lot of, of, of work to do in chapter 16. We're not going to, I was planning on reading all of it, but I'm not going to have that time. So I'm going to summarize some of it, and then we're going to uh, read through uh, quite a bit of it uh, as well. So in the first part of chapter 16, uh, Paul is starting on his, on his journey, and he comes across a young man named Timothy. Timothy was probably saved during his first missionary journey when he was, when he was there in, um, in Lystra and, and, and Iconium. And so uh, Timothy is there, and Paul desires to take Timothy with him on mission, on this missionary journey. Uh, there's an issue here, though, where all of a sudden we see this circumcision thing come up again, and we want to say, wait, I thought we already dealt with this circumcision thing. Like, we already know you don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved, and yet Paul decides to, he's going to circumcise Timothy. Now, there's, there's a lot going on here culturally. Essentially, what's happening, though, is that Paul is not saying that Timothy needs to be circumcised in order to be saved. Timothy is already saved. What he's saying is that uh, because of the Jews that were in the city and their desire to share the gospel in the synagogues and other places and not have any kind of hindrance against them, he decides to circumcise Timothy, uh, who would have been, his mother was a Jew, explains, goes into those details, his father was a, was a Greek. And so basically he says, listen, in order that the gospel may go forward, in order that it, there, we, we don't give them any stumbling blocks, we don't give the Jews any reason to turn down our message, we're going to go ahead and make sure there's this, that this thing right here is not a stumbling block. And so Timothy um, is circumcised and then joins Paul on uh, the missionary journey. So it's not an issue of salvation. It's really an issue of like mission strategy. What are we going to do to be able to, to make sure we have every effort to take the gospel to those who need to hear it? Then we move on from there, uh, and uh, they're, they're continuing to uh, a place called uh, Phrygia in Galatia. The, 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 uh, the desire in this of uh, Paul's, it seems, is to go to directly through Asia, maybe to get to Ephesus. And I don't know if you could pull that picture back up again. Um, but you have uh, Paul desiring to go into one place, um, probably right there straight to Ephesus. But instead, the, it's, the Holy Spirit does not let them go. For whatever reason, it says they were pre pre prevented by the Holy Spirit from, from going. Then they actually go up north, and he decides he'd like to go to Bithynia, and even further north. And the Lord says, no, you're not going to go there either. And so this is when Paul receives a vision. It's sometimes called the Macedonian call. It's where Paul is sleeping and gets a vision by night of somebody in Macedonia calling out to him saying, please come and help us. 
And so Paul's trying to figure out what is all happening here. I want to go this way, and God said no. I want to go that way, and the Lord said no. And so I guess that means we're supposed to go this way. Now, I have to say, it would be really nice if all my decisions were made that way. Like, if I was going to do something, I just heard the Lord say, no, Jerry, don't, don't go there, right? So it's like, all right, I want to go to, no, no, don't go to Lowe's. Nope, don't, don't go to Home Depot. No, I want you to go to, I want you to Walmart. And then I want you to go to aisle 11, and you're going to meet this dude there in aisle 11, and I've got a conversation I want you to have. Like, that would be amazing. Uh, in my experience, the Lord does not always work that way and doesn't always speak that way. I'm not saying that he doesn't, though. Doesn't, by the work of the Holy Spirit, impress on your heart and, you know, conversations that you need to have, places people on your heart at the exact right moment. I mean, we could go through stories of the of the work of God when, you know, maybe you be in, in prayer or maybe he even wakes you up to pray for somebody, puts them on your heart. Like that's, that's the real work of the Holy Spirit. And, and we should take that seriously and respond when those, when those moments come. Um, but the, the, the general way that the Lord works is not this way. It's not always, okay, don't go there, don't go there. I want you here at this specific place. But we see the hand of God moving Paul and Silas exactly where he wants them to be at the exact right moment. And so we see that he's leading them to a place and to a city called Philippi. Now you can read through the text on your own. Luke does a fantastic job of actually like chronicling like every specific place they go, exactly how it works, but I don't exactly have all the time to do that, so you can check it out on your own. It's, it's pretty cool how the, the Lord just takes them to where they need to be, and he leads them to an encounter with three different people in the city of Philippi. So we're going to see three lives that are transformed by the power of Jesus. So there's a reason why the Lord led Paul there. So we get there, and uh, in, verse, in chapter 16, verse 13. So we'll pick up there, and it says, uh, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we were supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple or a seller of purple goods. And she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart. You should underline that. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So the first encounter is with a woman named Lydia. God has a gospel encounter that he needs right then. And so that there's this woman is a, similar to Cornelius. She's a, she's a worshiper of God or a fear of God, but she's not yet saved. She has not yet heard of Jesus. And so she's not yet born again. And so Paul leads her, Paul leads them to, uh, to her house or to this, to this prayer meeting. So the Lord changes this woman's life. It's interesting is that, so she is saved. And then get this. Then she starts a hope community like the same day, right? So she invites them into her house and was like, no. And she says she prevailed upon them. And she wouldn't take no for an answer. So, she's, so get that. She's saved, baptized, and starts a hope community. So there's our pattern. Um, if you, uh, so we're ready to go. We got some new ones. We got to get started. March 3rd, make sure you come to our ministry fair. There you go, Penny. Did it. All right. 
So, um, so Lydia's life is changed by the power of Jesus. The Lord opened her heart. What do we see? We see that God is sovereign in salvation. God was sovereign in the way that he led Paul to where he needed to be. He was sovereign in that he, he, he made the encounter happen. He is sovereign in that he opened her heart to receive the message and the word of, uh, of the gospel. God works in changing hearts and lives. And it's only by the power of Jesus. So this is an incredible moment that happens. And then you go on to the second person. And it says in verse 16, as we were going to the place of... Oh, by the way, did you notice the transition to we... Did you might catch that? This whole time it's been them, they, and then all of a sudden Luke inserts himself into the picture. So it transitions to this second person plural we, which scholars believe that basically Luke joined them on the mission at this point. So for this little bit, little portion of time, maybe he stayed in Philippi. I'm not going to dive into all that. Maybe he did. We don't know exactly, but apparently he's there, at least for this moment. And so he says, while we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had the spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept going and doing for many, many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So there's a little slave girl. She's enslaved by these people um, and they're, she's demon possessed and they're using that as a way to make selfish gain. And so um, she's being used and she's being abused by these owners. And, and then when she's finally delivered by the power of Jesus, and they realize, oh no, now we can't make money on her, we can't use her anymore, we can't, you know, use her for our own purposes, they realize, and so then they turn angry, and they face their anger at Paul and, and Silas, and so this sweet little girl who was, um, who was possessed by a demon, used and abused by everybody around her, is changed by the power of the gospel. Jesus has the power to change lives. And he still does that today. There's stories in this room that are just like this one. Stories of, 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 of abuse. Stories of, of struggle. Stories of brokenness. Where God, by the power of, of, his, of his grace and his mercy, has changed lives. Brought people from death into life. And he still does that today. Well, we talked about God being sovereign, right? Well, God uses this event to bring persecution so that they will then be arrested and put into prison for a very specific purpose and for the next encounter, the third life, changed by the gospel. So if you look at the beginning in verse 19, so her owners saw that their hope was, was gone and they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. And they, the crowd joined in attacking them. Which, by the way, all the, all the accusations against them were false. They were, they were just trying to make up these lies, trying to stir up people, and have some reason to, to detain them. 
the crowd then joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore off the gar- their garments, and they gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, you could call it a dungeon, and fastened their feet to the stocks. So I got to go to Thessaloniki, Greece, uh, 10 or 12 years ago, and they showed us one of the prisons that was what the, sort of the historic site and there was, a, there was a prison area, like a, a, you call it the normal jail cell. And then there was a deeper pit where they would throw people, cast them in there, and then they would actually fasten them. And it was, a, it was a way to torture them. It wasn't meant to just be like a holding space. It was meant to be torture. And so they, they had literally taken them into the dungeon, and they're fastening their feet in a way uh, that, is, that is extremely painful. So think about the, this picture. They've, they've just been arrested. They've been beaten, stripped naked and beaten, and then tossed into a dungeon. Now here is where this story just, just gets even more incredible. If, it, if, if you think it couldn't even get better. 25. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Time out. What? What? Like, all right, did, we, did we just hear what just happened to them? They just got stripped, and they just got beaten, and they just got, they just got chained and thrown into a dungeon. And the next thing we see them doing is they're singing, and they're praying, and they're singing praises to the Lord. Like, that is, if that, that is just an incredible, incredible picture of perseverance in, in faith in the Lord Jesus, no matter what life throws at you. So there's a couple things that stand out to me here. First is just that they were singing and they were praising, which is pretty incredible because later on, Paul would write, rejoice in the Lord at all times. Doesn't matter what the circumstance is, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Do you know where Paul wrote that? He wrote that to the church at Philippi. He wrote that in the book of Philippians. And they would have already have seen what he had walked through. And so then he writes this letter back. Hey, remember, remember when that happened? Yeah, that that's also a moment to rejoice. That's also a moment to praise and honor our Lord Jesus. The second thing that stands out to me is the next verse, um, or the end of that verse. So they were singing in their, pra- in their praise in the Lord, right? And it says, and the prisoners were what? The prisoners are listening to them. That, I love that so much. Like, it's like they're, 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 they're listening. They're, like, they all have a choice not to listen. They just, you know, they're, they're, they're just doing it. And so they're taking it all in. I remember, this is so funny, because I was, um, I was in line at Sam's just a few weeks ago. We were, we were at Sam's Club. And you know that line you have to get to exit, and you have to show your receipt. So it was a pretty long line. So I was just sitting there waiting in line. And there was a couple of old ladies behind me. And uh, one lady, and they obviously were filled with joy. And this one lady just started singing, like in the middle of the, of the thing. And so I'm just sitting there. I'm just listening to them. And I'm just smiling. They don't know that I'm smiling, but I'm just, you know, and... And then her sister or somebody, you know, the, who, the friend that was with her was like, you, you shouldn't sing so loud. Like, you just don't, you know, trying to nudge her a little bit. And she said, but I'm happy. And so I turned around. I just couldn't stop anymore. So I was like, I said, I think your singing is absolutely beautiful. And I, and I love it. And she was like, oh, do you know Jesus? And I said, yes, I know Jesus. And so we went back and forth for a while. And then I just started singing with her. 
And so then her sister started joining in. So here we are walking out of Sam's Club, and we're just singing like, you know, singing our little hearts out. And uh, it, was, it was pretty, you know, people looked at us, and it was, it was okay. It was all right. But here, here's my point. When we're out, when we're about, when we're with our family, when we're with our friends, when we're with our neighbors, when people are watching and they're listening to us, right? They're listening to you at work. They're listening and watching the way that you respond to, to frustration. When the, the, when pe- the way that people, when somebody shouts at you, when somebody offends you, when somebody sins against you, they're watching to see how you're going to respond to that. Your kids, our kids are watching us. Our kids are watching the way that we do things, the way that we talk about people, the, the, the things that we say, the things that we watch. They're, they're watching and they're listening. And so you have these prisoners that are, that are listening. The jailer obviously is, is, is in on this as well and listening. Um, we have a watching world, a listening world in, in every area of our lives. And so... This story continues. So they're, they're listening to them. And then verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. If the prisoners had escaped, he knew that that meant his life. Right, he was entrusted with these prisoners. He, had, he got a direct order to throw them in the deepest place and keep them safely. If they had escaped, it's over for him. And so he's just going to go ahead and just uh, throw it in. He's going to end his life before Rome ends it for him. And so he's about to kill himself. But Verse 28, But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. You can, you can uh, sense the desperation here um, when he realizes that he's, he's, he's about to kill himself. Uh, he's about to end it all. And then Paul shouts out, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. We're all here. We are still here. And so they, they, they go or he actually rather comes to him and then it says uh, and the jailer called the lights rushed in and trembling with fear he fell down before Paul and Silas when he brought them out then he brought them out and said sirs what must I do to be saved and they said believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you and your household And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up to his house. (laughs) They're at the house of the jailer now. He brings them over to their house and he set food before them. And listen, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. If that's not a transformed life, un, unreal. So he's, first of all, he's, he's entrusted to bring torture and suffering to them, and now he's, he's caring for their wounds. He's taking them to his house. He's feeding them. He's caring for them, and he's rejoicing that his life has been changed by the power of the gospel. What an incredible changed changed and transformed life. 
Well, let's, just so we can finish the end of the story, let's, let's finish it up. It says, And when it was day, the magistrates sent to the police, saying, Let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. And they've thrown us into prison. Do they now expect to throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. They stay in prison. The police reported these things to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. This is, that's a pretty incredible turn of events, isn't it? They're apologizing to them, and they took them out, and they asked them to please leave the city. So they went out of the prison, and they visited Lydia. And then uh, when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and they departed. My goodness, how quickly that story just completely turned and changed. What I want to do for the next uh, few minutes that we have is I want us to focus on the question of, of this jailer. So the question that he asked these men is, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, if you're reading through the text, you can sense the desperation that's there. Like he is, he, he will do anything at this point. Like he's just like, well, like he's completely broken. No doubt he's listened to all that they have been saying this time, the songs that they were singing, the scripture that they were, that they were quoting. And so he's like, what must I do to be saved? Just tell me the list. Like whatever it is, I'll do it. And so like, if I, if I didn't do that, sure, I'll do it. Like if you were to ask people in our world today, what does it take to be saved? You're gonna get a thousand different answers, right? You're gonna say, well, uh, go to church a lot. Um, Give lots of money, do good things, uh, make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, um, become a member, get baptized. Like, you're going to get all different kinds of answers and what that, what does it mean to be saved? How do I get saved? What must I do to be saved? And this is what's so cool is that Paul doesn't give any of those answers, right? He doesn't, he doesn't tell them to, to do anything. What he's saying is, no, listen, Mr. Jailer guy. I wish we had a name for him other than just a jailer. But listen, Mr. Jailer, like you don't have to do anything. It's already been done for you. You just need to what? Believe. You just need to believe. So here's the question for us, all right? What does it mean to believe? So if, you, if, you, if you've been lost the past, you know, 20 minutes of this message, like stay with me here. What does it mean to believe? And I think there's, there's many components to this. But it includes, for sure, believing in who Jesus is, believing in what Jesus has done, and then placing our faith in him. All right? So believing in what, who Jesus is, believing in what Jesus has done, and then placing faith in him. So number one, believing in who Jesus is. Because of our sin, we needed a perfect sacrifice for sin. Blood, the blood of, uh, of goats and animals and, and, and lambs, like that would, could never actually atone for sin. We needed a perfect sacrifice for sin. And so God, being the only one who is perfect, came as a man himself, taking on human flesh in the, in the person of Jesus, 
and he became the perfect sacrifice, born of a virgin, miraculously, living the sinless, uh, perfect life, and then dying a death that he did not deserve. So who is Jesus? In fact, John writes his entire gospel in John 20. He says, I've written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. You have to believe in who he is. So who is Jesus? He is God in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians tells us. Hebrews tells us that he's the exact imprint of his nature. He is the great I am. He's the promised Messiah. He's the savior of the world. He's the perfect sacrifice for sin. That is who Jesus is. But we also have to believe in what he has done, what Jesus has done. I was reading um, a, uh, just a, I somehow come, come across this forum where people were commenting and quoting on things that, that the Lord had done for them, giving testimonies and things like that. And somebody posted a comment in this forum, and they said this. It says, people talk a lot about how God hears them and how God helps them. Well, every day of my life is suffering. Every day I feel like I'm being tortured. I hate God for creating me. Why should I love him when he's never done anything for me? Why should I love him when he's never done anything for me? Well, what has Jesus done? He substituted himself for sinners. He paid the penalty for our sin. He satisfied the wrath of God against us. He's ransomed the loss. He removed our sin and guilt as far as the east is from the west. He redeemed those under the law. He defeated the devil. He triumphed over death and he crushed the power of sin forever. That is what he has done. So what does it mean to believe? It means believing in who Jesus is. Believing in what Jesus has done and accomplished. And then placing our faith in him. The question is this. Okay, so how does what, who Jesus is and how has what Jesus has done, how does that get like credited to me, right? Like how does that become me? Like I know that if those things happened historically and this is where this is this is hugely important to understand what what faith is right and it's not just this intellectual um you know knowledge of something or of some facts there are facts that we do need to know because they happened and because they're absolutely crucial to understanding the gospel but it's more than just that the, the Westminster Catechism defines faith this way. It says, what is faith in Jesus? This is the question. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So it is something that we, that we receive and rest on. And it's much deeper than just some intellectual knowledge. So there's a lot of people who believe in Jesus. 
right? The demons believe in Jesus. Historians believe in Jesus. Most Americans believe in Jesus. So then there's something else that's there. And I want to demonstrate it this way. It's kind of, it's kind of like this. So we have this chair. Maybe you've seen it explained this way before. Um, I, I can tell you a lot of information about the chair, right? I can, I can look over it. I can check it out. We can, we can examine it. We can check the bolts on it. We can look and see where it was made. We can, you know, we can really like, man, that looks like I believe that that chair is trustworthy. I believe that that chair is going to hold me up. But here's the thing, right? I haven't actually placed any faith in the chair until what? Until I have sat Okay, so I've, I've placed faith that this thing is going to hold me up. Okay, now you may have heard that before, that, that illustration, but, but hear me. At the end of the day, it's just a chair, right? Worst case scenario, the chair collapses and I fall on the ground, right? But faith in Jesus is, is, is everything's at stake, right? It's not, it's not just I'm going to fall on the ground. My eternity is at stake. And so when we talk about faith in Jesus, it's not just about, hey, yeah, like sitting in a chair. It's like, no, like I'm, 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 put, I'm all in here. I'm putting everything in him. Like my, my soul and, and my eternity, I have no backup plan. I have no contingencies. Like I'm resting everything in Jesus. That's faith in Christ. I'm, I'm resting everything in him alone for my salvation. That's what it means to place your faith in Jesus. And there may be somebody here today, this morning, and, and this is the day. Today is the day where you stop believing facts about Jesus and actually place your faith, your eternity, your soul, your salvation in Him. And you say, I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. I'm not smart enough. I can't, I, I can't obey enough. I can't do any of these things enough. And Jesus says, I know you can't. And I've already done it for you. And so I'm asking you to believe and place your faith in me. Like, lay it on me. Rest on me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not a gift of God. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one will boast. And there's somebody in here today that needs to place their faith in Christ. What must I do to be saved? Believe. Place faith in Him. Adrian Rogers said, Salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift for the guilty. Salvation is not a goal to be achieved. It's a gift to be received. And church, it's a, it's a gift that can be received by faith today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, right now, I, I, I believe that there, there is someone here who's never yet placed their faith in you to be saved. And I believe that this is the moment, Lord, that your spirit is drawing them to you to believe in who you are, the sinless Son of God, the perfect sacrifice for sin, 
to believe in what you have done by laying your life down, taking on the sins of the world on yourself, dying on the cross, resurrected on the third day, now seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, calling men and women and children and young people and youth and senior citizens and adults and and, and every single person on the planet, drawing them to yourself. So Lord Jesus, would you work in hearts right now in this moment? In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a moment to um, just have a time of invitation. And, and here it is. If you're in here this morning and you'd say, man, I, I don't know. There, there's never been that time. I just don't, I don't know that I've ever actually placed everything, rested everything on him. Maybe you've been trying to do it your own way. Maybe you've been trying to be a good person. Maybe you've been trying to, you know, follow a set of rules. Maybe you've been trying to go to church. Maybe you've been trying all these things, but you've never actually trusted in Jesus. And I want you to know that right now, today, you can, you can place your faith in Christ Jesus right now. I'm just going to ask if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to have a time to pray. If that's you right now, and you know who you are, you can, from your heart, you could cry out to the God who made you. And you could say, Lord, I, I am lost. I am a sinner separated from you. But today, I believe. I believe that what you did on the cross, you did for me. And so, right now, by faith, I believe I'm trusting in you to save me from my sin. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in my works. I'm trusting in you, Jesus. Will you forgive me? Will you save me? In Jesus' name. A prayer so simple, just like that. Listen, nobody's looking around. Here's what I would love to know. If maybe that's you this morning and you'd say, man, that's, that's me. That's my prayer. Would you be so bold as just to, just to let me know, just to slip your hands up, just say, Jared, that's me. Just say, that's me. That's me today. Thank you. Anybody else? I'm placing my faith in Jesus today. I want you to know that we are available. We are here. If you have questions about this, if you say, hey, I, I want to know what it means. Like, what's my next step in following Jesus? Like, what do, what do I need to do? We would love to walk with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your love poured out on us. We thank you that, that we have a gift, the gift of, of faith to believe. So Holy Spirit, would you keep doing your work in our lives? In Jesus' name. We're going to sing together. We're actually going to stand to your feet. We're going to have a time of invitation. Um, I'm, I'll be here if you want somebody to pray with you, if you have questions about this. Um, if you want to come kneel at the altar and pray, if you want to stay there where you're at. Um,
but let's stand and let's sing together.